Welcome to episode 40 of the Camera Shake podcast, the podcast where we talk about anything and everything that's got anything to do with photography, videography, making photos, making videos. And of course, as always, we have an amazing guest on the show today. But before we get to that, let me just say one more thing. First of all, a big, massive thank you to all of you who have uh, recently subscribed to our YouTube channel because we have, in fact, hit our 100 subscriber mark, believe it or not. And as a consequence, we could, uh, we were allowed to um, uh, to rename our YouTube channel. So instead of it being youtube.com forward slash XYZ123000 or whatever, <laughs> it is now www.youtube.com forward slash camera shake. Simple as that. So... Hit that up, but you know, again, if you haven't subscribed yet, then uh, you might as well just do that now. You know, hit that bell thing or whatever. Likewise, Twitter, Instagram, all of that jazz. Anyway, without further ado, we're gonna hit it uh, right on. So today's guest on the show is none other than portrait and commercial photographer Holly Wren. Um, Holly, you <laughs> first of all, hi. How's it going? Hi. I was I was excited to see what you're going to say about me and see if you'd ripped it straight from my about on my website. Well, I have read that. And I've also read that uh, this is actually, uh, and I mentioned this because I found this hilarious, uh, because I can totally identify with this. Because you say for yourself, you're a light enthusiast, totally. And you're also, what do you call it? A straight line obsessor. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I think it should be a medical problem because it really is. <laughs> yeah. This is funny because before we actually uh, started recording this, you were telling me off for uh, my camera not being 100% straight. <laughs> it's <laughs> still not. Like... And I'm still very, very anxious about it. <laughs> cool. See, we, we like to keep our guests on the edge, of course. All yeah, the way I feel through. on the edge. Thanks for giving <laughs> so... me extra stress in this very serene world that we live in right now. Just tilt yourself slightly. You'll be, uh, you'll look straight. Yeah. There we go. I'm like this the whole time. Perfect. <laughs> Wicked. <laughs> Cool. All right. So, um, Holly, so you've, you're obviously you're, you're a commercial photographer and you're also a portrait photographer. I take it, I mean, from looking at your website and looking at your Instagram, um, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that really portrait photography is really kind of your main, your main thing. Yeah. I, do you know what? I'm, I'm one of these really awkward people that find it really hard to describe what I do. Um, mm. And so normally I just say I shoot people, but that can be taken in a really bad way. So um, I photograph people and whether that's, I guess, a story tell, so a lifestyle image or a very straightforward portrait, nearly, every, nearly everything I do um, involves people in some aspect. So you, you're also a writer for a number of magazines. Yes, that is also true. Good cool. researching. As always. Um, and well, I want to talk to you about this a little bit later because this is a really interesting aspect. Um, I think, you know, when people think about being a photographer, especially, I think, especially people who don't necessarily know very much about, you know, what it actually, what being a photographer actually entails, but also for people who are maybe, you know, at college or they may be thinking about getting into photography. Um, yeah. I think people very often, you know, don't really realize all the things that are involved in, in being a photographer, because on one hand, you know, you take photos, of course, for a certain amount of time, but then you're also editing, you're doing lots of other things and uh, you're running a business at the same time, which sort of puts you kind of in the same league with just about any other small business owner in a, in a way. Yeah. And, you know, and, uh, and I know certainly from, you know, from my history, uh, having run a music related business in the past, uh, I certainly didn't get into music originally, you know, to write invoices and do all the boring 
kind of admin stuff, you know, that 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 brings with it. But we'll talk about the sort of business side in a minute. Um, so to start with, uh, you know, just by looking um, looking at your imagery and um, and uh, you know looking into your website and um, and all of that, I found I found a number of of really interesting things. The one thing that I that I uh, why that am I, I scared? Go. <laughs> <laughs> so the one thing that I really that I read about was um, that you did a, you did a project with an indigenous tribe in Mexico. I did, yeah, I did. I love that was a great project. Was this the Day of the Dead festival? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those pictures were awesome. It was Thank so you. good. Well, that was like completely random because basically the indigenous community they went to visit they don't let anybody in, so. Um, they especially hate Americans because this is Mexico. So weirdly, my connection to them was through an American friend of mine who's an artist and she works, well, she's an, a Mexican-American and she works with uh, some very famous street artists in Mexico who are from Oaxaca, which is where we went. And their mum was in that community, was part of that tribe. And basically, there's the only people really left there. I mean, I think in those set of images, there was two young children. And most of the people in there, you can see, which made my pictures much better, were older people, great faces. Um, but that's all that's left, because basically, when they all sort of pass away, that tribe is gone, because most of them have moved out to Mexico City or gone to America. Um so they weren't a big fan of Americans. And because it was my American friend that was there, she had to be the translator because she speaks Spanish. Now, I don't speak Spanish, but she was basically told when we were there not to talk because if they got a whiff of her American accent, then it would be like, huh. no, you can't take our picture. Whereas as an English person, I was totally fine. However, I couldn't speak Spanish. So we had that problem to overcome. And then to make it doubly worse, these guys actually speak their own language. One of the few tribes left that speak uh, a language called Zapoteca. I am not making that up. I'm pretty sure that's what it was called. <laughs> so we had to do translation from Zapoteca to Spanish and then Spanish to English for me to be able to interact with them. All the while, the American girl couldn't actually speak because, and she was the only person with us that spoke English as well as um, Spanish. So she was kind of my interpreter. And one of the hardest things I found about that whole project, and I think I cried twice on that trip, was that, I really lost my ability to interact with people through language. And I didn't realize how important that was to me as a photographer to be able to talk to people and create, um, I guess, a rapport with people through conversation. And that was completely gone. And I genuinely cried twice because I just lost my shit because I couldn't, I felt so out of it. Even when we were in Oaxaca doing the Day of the Dead celebrations, which, by the way, are absolutely incredible. I mean, this is like a party for um, seven days, but really the meaning behind it and why they do it is is really special. And again, when I was explained that by this lovely old bloke, I started crying and they, they were like, why are you sad? It's like a happy thing. We're celebrating people's lives rather than their death. But there's something really beautiful about the way they do it. But when we were in Oaxaca, everyone spoke Spanish and I, I only speak English. I've always been absolutely rubbish with languages. I got an E at my GCSE German and I just leave it off my CV because it's outrageous. Um, not that anyone cares about your GCSE. Um, so don't worry, kids. It's fine. Um, but yeah, they, uh, I just found it really hard just it not being able to interact with people and people talk and people talking around me and me having absolutely no control or idea of you know, what was being said and then getting 
a very rough translation of like, oh, it's fine. We're going to go up a mountain in a minute. And I'm like, well, you had a 20 minute conversation about that. So I can't imagine that's all that was said. Um, so it was photographically amazing, but also probably quite a big like learning experience for me about how to interact with people when you your language is just taken away from you. Because I think that as a portrait photographer working here and anywhere else in the world where they can speak English, that's that's a big part of like how I interact and create rapport with people. So yeah, it was incredible. And the pictures were I still love all those pictures, but it was it was a definitely more of a probably a personally interesting trip. Communication is such an important part of being a photographer. And I, I guess it's when you're thrown into a situation like that where you can't communicate, you realise how how important it really is. So as that as that 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 trip progressed, how did you find yourself de- dealing with that? How did you actually end up doing that communication when you weren't having a translator um, around? How did you communicate with those people? So basically, if you said Trump, they started laughing. And if you said anything about the wall, they started laughing, weirdly. Um, And I basically learned to say, like, guapa, like, you know, attractive man. So if I was photographing a bloke, I'd be like, oh, guapa, guapa. And he'd be like, (laughs) and then I'd be like, okay, well, that works. So I sort of, like, picked up, like, tiny bits of the language that I knew that they understood in Spanish outside of their own, like, tribal language and... Um, sort of complimented them, I guess, which is what I would do in English, right? But you do it in a much more complicated manner. You know, you mm. go about it in a in a much different manner than you do when you're um, when you're communicating with someone where you, you can't speak anything. So, and and I also kind of came a bit more at peace uh, listening to other people around me talking languages and not feel the need to control it, like to understand everything that was being said and kind of go with the flow. I am as a photographer, I like to be very much in control because I find, especially in environmental portraiture, everything is out of your control. Uh, You can plan, you can do as much prep as you like, but at the end of the day, if it suddenly decides to uh, be blazing sun when you thought it was going to be pouring with rain, like it changes the light conditions and there's nothing you can do about it. So planning and control is great, but you end up losing it. So in a way, I like to be as in control as possible. So when the things come that I can't control, everything else is, is good and set. Um, but I, I guess on that trip, I was really out of my comfort zone because I was so far out of control of everything, everything. Like I literally turned up on a promise that my friend was like, yeah, we're going to the mountains. We're going to photograph these people. And I was in Oaxaca. I was in LA and then Oaxaca for probably two weeks. And when we got to Oaxaca, I had no idea, you know, what even day we were shooting on because no one had decided, you know, we went to visit the people, the artists and, they were like, oh, maybe we'll go tomorrow. Maybe we'll go the next day. Who knows? And it was like every day I was thinking, you know, I've spent money on this. I'm here to take pictures. When are we just going to go and get these shots? And the added problem was that I was also potentially basically not eating anything because I was petrified I was going to get food poisoning. And I was like, I'm not letting my hair down and eating their beautiful cuisine or doing anything other than eating bread and basically cheese until a veg until I'd done this shoot because if I get sick, I can't do it. So uh, I was probably hangry for the first half of it as well. Uh, But yeah, and and also food was such a big thing to them that we'd go to these people's houses in these, you know, shacks, like literally metal shacks that they lived in. And they'd want to feed us because that was like a really big part of their culture. And, 
you know, welcoming thing. And I was just like, if I eat this, I'm literally going to die because my little white stomach cannot deal with this. Whereas my Mexican friend was much more afraid with it and she could eat anything and she was fine. So I'm actually a pescatarian. So she kept saying to them, oh, actually, she can't eat the soup you've made or whatever because it's got meat in it. And they thought that was absolutely hilarious. They couldn't understand why somebody wouldn't eat meat. So I kind of got away with it on a humor thing because they just thought I was some weird white girl who wouldn't eat meat for some strange reason. Um, but yeah, so so that was like another like sort of, I guess, cultural navigation. Um, and then when we finished, we went out and got really pissed. I forgot myself, drank some ice, got really sick and basically spent the next week unable to move from the hotel room <laughs> had to go see a doctor in Oaxaca and then went to LA and basically had a 24 hour delay on my flight and had to sit in a hotel room and not eat because I couldn't eat or drink anything without it removing itself from my body immediately. However, that was all after I'd done the shoot. So I was totally, <laughs> everything I thought actually happened, but I waited until the shot the shoot was done. And then I, uh, yeah, stupidly drank some ice from a bar when I was drunk. And that was, that was the end of me. That's like a fun trip. <laughs> Yeah. Well, weirdly enough, uh, it was a kickoff to me losing a loads of weight. So when people say to me, oh, how did you lose like two stone? I'm like, well, I went to Mexico, got food poisoning, got really sick. And after that, chose to uh, eat as little as possible. And that worked out for me. Funny. Same thing happened to me. I, one of my trips to India in the past, I, I got sick while I was over there. And that lasted for about six months. When I, was, when I was back so I could never eat anything proper again yeah. so yeah I lost a lot of weight it's a great way to get skinny yeah. I would thoroughly recommend sick. it in fact I'm thinking about going back after this whole COVID lockdown situation oh love it love it yeah it's uh, so so that was a I, I take it that was a personal project that or were yes, you commissioned was, yeah. together yeah 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 what was the inspiration behind it? Obviously, your fr your friend had some access to to the area and the and the tribe. But what was your inspiration behind wanting to to do that trip in the first place? I guess like the same as my interest in all my personal projects. It's I kind of have a real desire to like see places and meet people that you don't generally have access to, and I ask a lot of questions. So for me, um, I like to learn a lot, and I find even when I travel for myself, like, you know, not that I travel for myself because every travel trip turns into a personal project, but every time I go on holiday, I'm more keen to always go to places that are culturally very different or um, sort of very removed from the, I guess, the life that we live in the UK. And so when that opportunity came up, it was like, well, this is amazing. Firstly, nobody gets to go to these places. Secondly, like these guys are die literally dying out as a as a culture. Um and I and it would put me completely outside of my comfort zone, which are all kind of things I guess I look for when I'm looking at personal projects and something that I think I will learn from. I mean, there is a uh you might not have I can send it to you. Um there is like a, a rotor uh, uh I guess like an article after I'd been on that trip that sort of summarized what I'd done there because I kind of felt like the pictures weren't enough because I'd learned so much and had such an emotional experience that I guess as a photographer, sometimes I feel a bit limited that I'm just giving a picture, you know, and you find that often when you're looking at your own shots, when you have a personal connection to it, you think it's the best picture. Whereas somebody that may have never seen a set of pictures will pick a completely different one. And I found that 
with uh, the project I shot that was an exhibition called Love Lived, which is where I photographed a group of old people who uh, all told us their love stories. There was 13 of them and their love stories were like supposed to be surprising or interesting. And the idea was really that I felt like people look at the elder generation, like our elders uh, or elderly people and think, oh, you know, they grew up during the war and that was tough, but they all went out dating. They met somebody, they got married, they lived happily ever after. And of course, that's not how it went down. Like they had all the same issues that we had. So that project was me finding those people that had very interesting love stories and talking to them about it. And it's funny because one of the guys who passed away recently, he was um, 80 odd, uh, must be now, his uh, grandson got in touch with me on email and said, I didn't even know my granddad did this with you. And I watched the video of him and I had no idea about how he met my grand because he basically had met his grand and her friends and he had to pick between them. So he told me the story very honestly about literally I can't it's not even a joke so this bloke was telling me that he was looking at their boob sizes and deciding who he thought was more attractive (laughs) so um we you know we got this kind of access to these people who just were really honest with us because we're not their family you know we're not their grandchildren um and told us all these amazing stories but what I found was I had an attachment to a woman called uh, Shitra who um was very independent she'd come from India she'd uh her mum had told her she, you know, had to marry a doctor and live in India. And she was like, nah, I'm going to the UK. I'm going to become a nurse. So she came over and did that. And she, in her own words, said she would never marry a pinky, but ended up falling in love with a white guy who um, she told us the story of him and, and they had this amazing romance. But she was very motivated and very independent and very opinionated. And that really resonated resonated resignated with me resignated why can't i use my words what is the word resonated 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 it resonated with me but what i found is when the exhibition was up is that people would walk around and their favorites would be completely different people and the reason that i realized that they had these favorites was because they saw themselves in these elderly people so the people that I knew, my friends or, you know, colleagues who were looking at them would be like, oh, I love this shot. And I realized that the story behind that person was actually quite similar to the person looking at the at the picture. And so I think, you know, everyone sees something different in every picture. And that's why it's so hard to like enter competitions or have your work judged by other people because everybody sees it through their own eyes, like art, right? So it's it's incredibly difficult to to sometimes say like why you love a project or you love a picture it's normally because it's it's just some it taps into something inside of you um which i think is what's important with personal projects right because you're doing them for yourself so you know we do personal projects because they uh i guess feed your soul in a way that photographing a corporate headshot may not so i think one of the things that's that's always uh, really interesting when it comes to um personal projects is that Obviously, this is how I feel about it. Uh, is that you know, as, as a photographer, uh, most of the time, I think more, more often than not, you just simply love taking pictures. And yeah. so, when you find a subject matter that, that you find just intrinsically, you know, interesting, then you know, to document that visually is it's almost like second nature for, you know, for for most for most people, I think. Um, and then you know, there's this sort of argument. 
that kind of says, well, you know, as a professional, you should get paid for this and that and the other. That's just always just this sort of, you know, it's this sort of balance because I kind of, I kind of hear it from both sides. You know, sometimes people go like, oh, well, yeah, but you should really get paid for this, you know, blah, 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 or only do commissions. And then of course, you know, on the other hand, it's like, yeah, but if, you know, if something, if you really feel strongly about something, then why not? I mean, what's the, what's the problem? So, so when you decide on, on a, on a personal project, do you have any, uh, do, do you sort of, um, are there any sort of commercial thoughts that go through your mind, like as to how you can use the, the images um, afterwards, or do you just not worry about that at all and just go, well, I just want to do it, so I'll do it? I think for me, it's normally a mix. So for example, there are projects that I will shoot mm. that I don't get commissioned for. So so test shoots. I mean, if we're, if we're counting test shoots separately, I would count a test shoot separate to a personal project mm -hmm. in the sense that a test shoot is normally me testing an idea or a lighting setup or um, something that is basically for me to practice in a vertical commerce photography. So I, and sometimes I give myself a project that has that. So as an example, when I first started photography years and years ago, I was very uncomfortable using, I started like most photographers using natural light and I felt very uncomfortable with flash, but I realized that I would have to use it in order to deliver briefs because of course, when you start out and, or if you're a hobbyist and you're going out when the weather's nice, that's great. But as a professional, you have to turn up and make something look great no matter what the conditions. So I realized quickly that I'd have to use flash. So I set myself up a personal project um, photographing women who um, you will never find this anywhere now because I don't like these pictures anymore. Um, but they uh, was photographing women with a condition called endometriosis, which is something that I suffer from. So it was a pro it was um, I guess a cause like close to my heart, and I knew that the charity that do endometriosis in endometriosis UK is very small. So I didn't expect to be paid from them. But what I did is contact them and say, look, I'm thinking about doing this project would you guys benefit from it in any way? Because of course, commercially for me, it's great if it's used by somebody, but also in my head, it was my idea. It was my project. It was something I wanted to do. And, um, but if it could be some benefit to somebody else, great. If they'd approached me and said, will you shoot a, a series of women for our, for our website? I'd have probably said, okay, well, I want to be commissioned for that. The way that I look at it is if it's my idea, my commission, my pitch is something that there is benefit to me from it, then I tend to not think that I should be paid for that. Unless of course it's used in some way that I wouldn't agree to. So I, with that project, I set myself a challenge of using flash. So I was like, okay, so every single shot is going to be taken inside. It's going to be environmental. So, I mean, this is right at the beginning. We're talking like nine years ago. So I was like, it's going to be environmental. I'm going to go into these people's places. I'm going to let them choose the location. So I have no idea where I'm turning up to, no idea what it's going to look like. And I will go there and I will take a picture. And the beauty of that being a project or a test shot is there's no expectation of delivery. So mm. no, nobody knows what I'm going to, even I didn't know what I was going to deliver, but you know, no one's paying me. And also I could take my time because I was giving my time and these people weren't expecting a deliverable effectively, except for a nice picture. So I went into all the situations because that was my fear. My fear was if I go into an environment that I've never been in before, if I have no idea what it's going to look like, 
how am I going to take a picture? And also, how am I going to use flash? Because I'm no good at using flash right now. So I did that project to give myself a, ch- a challenge effectively. Mm. Um, and now I would say like my expertise is exactly that, like environmental portraiture, going into somewhere and making it work in some way that creates a great picture and telling a story with the environment as well as the person. Um, but that was, you know, that was a personal project and I didn't get paid for it. But then I'll do like, and that took a lot and took, so Love Lived, the exhibition, that was also a personal project, but I partnered with the charity to do it with the charity. Um, because the benefit to me for that was that they gave me access to the elderly people. So I said, look, this is my project. This is what we're doing. I'm happy to do it with you guys, but I need you to source the elderly people because you have contact with them. And so they, they helped me with that project because I needed that access and I wanted to help somebody and involve a charity. And also obviously from my point of view, then have a brand with it. But at the same time, it was my idea. It was my project. So I had no expectation of being paid for it. And I think generally with personal projects, I tend to um, look at charities because they're people that need the work and they need to not pay for the work because they don't have the money. Whereas, you know, would I approach Sony and say, I've got a personal project, Sony, because actually Sony can probably afford to pay for it. So I think for me, I just have to be comfortable with what I'm doing and it has to come from me and be my idea. And, you know, people get very caught up in, I'm not being paid for this, I'm not being paid for that, I should be getting paid for it. Yeah, maybe you should, but quite frankly, if your requirement for that brand or that work or that access is more than they need it, then you kind of take that as your payment. Like payment's not always in money. It's in exposure. It's in uh, getting a brand on your portfolio. It's whatever it might be. And I know people hate it when photographers specifically hate it when people approach them and say, I've got a job for you. We can't pay you, but it'll be great exposure. And you're like, oh, great. Well, I actually pay my mortgage and exposure. So if you could put that in my bank account, that would be excellent. But that's annoying because somebody's coming to you and asking you for your service mm. for free. It's very different if you're going to somebody and asking something out of them. And I find that in general, in all the brands I work with, so I'm a, an ambassador for Sigma. Mm. Um, I did more with Nikon, with Profoto. For me, I always think about what can I do for them, not what can them, what can they do for me? And I think a lot of people go into situations and think, oh, well, I want free kit. I want this. I want that. And in return, you get me and, and it's the wrong attitude. You should be like, what is it that I can deliver for them that gives them value that will make them want to work with me? And eventually, like, for example, with Sigma, that turned into me being an ambassador for them. And I always get lots of nice free lenses um, in return for the things that I do for them. But I I think people, you can almost get a bad attitude being a photographer and be like, I should be getting this, I should be getting that. And I always have to sit back and sort of say to myself, you know, when I get asked to do quotes for jobs, I have like, okay, well, I'd love to get paid this amount of money and this is what I think I'm worth, but what is the minimum I'd be willing to do it for? And depending on who that is, mm. If Sony came to me tomorrow and said, oh, will you shoot our worldwide campaign? Obviously, I know that's going to do my brand and my future work a lot of good. So, of course, the minimum I'm willing to do it for is going to be less than if I already had Toshibo and PlayStation and 15 other massive brands in my portfolio because I don't need it. But if I need it to step me up a level, 
then I have to consider that weighed against the payment. Hmm. And I think it's very easy to say, well, I should be getting paid this and maybe I should be. And I could refuse to do anything on that basis. But would I then grow my portfolio and who I am as a person? Potentially not. It's like being a drinks brand and giving away free drinks on the street so people know who you are. Like, okay, the brand probably doesn't want to give away 50 free cans of their product, but is that giving away 50 free cans of their product, the cost of that, going to get them 9,000 sales in return? Mm -hmm. You know, it's all a, a business decision, isn't it, based on what you need right now. So what I needed nine years ago is very different to what I need right now. And of course, doing those things and working with those brands or people then give you access to more things. So for example, I did a whole project with uh, the Flying Doctors in Australia. Now I used to watch the Flying Doctors when I was a kid. So for me, that was like, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I was like, what the Flying Doctors? They're a real thing. And uh, my dad was a pilot. So, you know, there's, there's like aviation is a thing in my family. My brother who is 17, can now fly a plane, but not drive a car, which I find scary. Um, but I, I got that experience because, and again, a personal project, although they did pay actually um, for that, for my expenses. So I didn't, it didn't cost me anything. Um, but my sisters live in Australia. So I was in Australia anyway. All I had to do was take the flight to the base mm. and then do the project. And that was being paid for in expenses. So for me, it was, you know, an incredible experience. Somewhere that I wasn't going to get access to any other way. If I'd, and the, so the, the, to back up, the reason I got that is because I work at Clarence House um, with uh, Prince Charles. So working in the house there, I do events uh, for charities that come in. And one of the charities that was there doing an event was uh, the Royal Flying Doctors, who Prince Charles is the patron for. So whenever they do an event in Clarence House, anyone that turns from charity is like, you know, the top people. So, for example, I did WWF as in the world wildlife, not the wrestlers. And um, otherwise this would be weird. David Attenborough was there because he was a guest of them. He's not a fan of wrestling. So that makes sense. Um, oh, no, no, he might be a fan of wrestling, but that's not why he was at the world wildlife thing. Um, so he was there, you know, and they invite all these amazing guests. So when the uh, the Royal Flying Doctors were there, obviously their CEO, all the people from the UK were there. And I had a conversation with their UK CEO and got had his email details and I emailed and said, look, I've got an idea. I'd really like to go and photograph a project um, of the Royal Flying Doctors. Would you be able to give me access to that? And through him, I got that project. But if I hadn't been having that conversation with him, then I wouldn't have got it. And if I'd gone to him and said, hey, do you want to pay me to do uh, do some shots in Australia? They'd probably say, uh, no, rack off, as they would in Australia, because we've got loads of people in Australia that will do it for us. So for me, it was an incredible experience. I was already in Australia. They were covering my expenses. And actually, since then, they've given me other work that they have paid for. So I kind of feel like everything's a, a way up of what you're willing to do and how much you're willing to do it for, if that makes sense. And this, this applies to all all businesses, as far as I'm concerned, particularly you know, self-employed people, that you, you give what you can give right and it will eventually be returned to you as far as i'm concerned right and i've lived by that for a really long time now i don't mind doing stuff for free um obviously if it costs me a lot of money to do something actually all right we might need to just be sensible about (laughs) it but if it's a skill set that i can offer someone that needs some help to do something i'm gonna i'm just gonna do it because i enjoy that and it's the it's the right thing to do 
Um, one, I have one to say that I'm also relatively selfish in the sense that <laughs> I do do it because it's the nice thing to do, but there is also a benefit to me. Like, yeah. it would be a lie to say that I was so interested in helping, you know, this charity that I just shot that stuff for free because I wanted to put on an exhibition and I needed yeah. an idea and that served both of our purposes. I would find it difficult to say there wasn't some benefit to me in that. But those, well, those benefits, are, benefits are what you reap, right? It's just... Yeah part of doing something for other people as far as I, I see it. And they are really positive benefits that will come back to you. Some will pay off, some won't, right? And that's Yeah, and actually that 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 uh charity this year, although now it got canned because of COVID, like everything else, um, but we were supposed to be shooting an advertising campaign for them in November, October last year for their Christmas campaign, which they wanted me to do. So I would have been paid for that you know, that's a proper exactly. job. So it's, it's come around in that sense. You exactly. Know? So the, payback, the payback very often can be, you know, other than financials, like you, you mentioned earlier, you know, especially I think for people who are starting out, the payback uh, very often is experience, for example. And, you know, since, it's, you know, I very often feel that, um, you know, the road to becoming a inverted commas professional photographer is really, you know, one of troubleshooting all the way through. And, the problem you, solving. Problem solving, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, you won't be able to get better at problem solving if you don't encounter problems along the way. And we yeah. all do, you know, whether it's a light that's not working or the sun is in the wrong place or you've forgotten a piece of kit or, or the lenses. You know, I did a shoot the other day and um, my, uh, my 70 to 200 just gave out. That's it. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was, that lens was crucial for this particular job. I just had to make it work in other ways. Um, and that will happen. It will happen because we use so much gear and we're, uh, you know, reliant on circumstance and weather and lighting and people and all the rest of it. And I, I really think that, you know, the only way that you can get better at, at any of these is just by doing it and by putting yeah. yourself into that, into that situation. I think people spend too long sometimes finding excuses of why they can't do stuff. So they'll sure, say, yeah. oh, well, I can't go and practice this shot because I don't have the right lights or I need this thing to be able to do this thing. And actually, you know, when I did that project for Endometriosis UK, I was using a speed light in a Laster light softbox, like, you know, something that I would not use now because I have pro photo, you know, B10s and stuff. But mm -hmm. at the time that was all that was available to me and it yeah. was perfectly good enough to practice 100%. the skill. You know, a lot sure. of time, if I can help it, I'll go out with a 50 mil. Sometimes, I, sometimes especially in cities, I go out um, and I just take a 50 mil lens and I'm like, right, I'm going to shoot the whole day on a 50 mil lens. And that's yeah. my challenge to myself. Like, how do I make it work just using that one thing? Mm -hmm. Um of course, as you level up, the expectation of you levels up. And that's why sometimes when people start, they get this idea that they go, oh, well, you get paid this. And it's like, yeah, but someone's not paying me for three days work. They're paying me for nine years of experience that leads up to those three days of work. If you go in at this high price and you screw it up, the expectation of you getting it right is so high. Like even I find now when I get jobs that I'm like, God, that's a lot of money. I'm like, shit. What if I don't deliver to the right standard? Because as soon as you start getting paid more and more money, the expectation on what you're going to produce increases. And so at the beginning, it was often good for me just to take jobs where I was getting, you know, 50 quid here or 100 quid there, because actually I didn't need the money. I needed the exposure. I needed to go out. In, and with photography, especially if you work environmentally and not in a studio, it's all about trying to come across as many different circumstances as possible mm completely screw it up 
and then work out why you screwed it up and not do that again. When I've mentored people and they've said, oh, I had the shoe, I was in a, it went awful. Like it was just an event. The light was wrong. I couldn't make my flash. It went terrible. It went good. I'm glad it went awful because if the light had been perfect and everything had been grand, you, you could have been anyone who put your camera on auto and took a good picture. You have to be able to perform in shit circumstances. So if you, if it was terrible, this is good because what you can now look at those pictures and be like, why did it go wrong? What did I do wrong? How have other people got this right? And then when you go back into the same circumstance, you make those minimal adjustments. And I think that, or max adjustment, who knows? But I think that that's how you become better. And so that when somebody who, for example, for me, if I'm in an event and I'm shooting and the light looks terrible, I have some faith in myself that I'm like, well, if I'm not getting this right and I've run through all the possible issues I think it could be, I don't think anyone else could do it better. And that's where you need to be at, where you're like, okay, I've controlled everything I can control. I've made every adjustment I can make. I can't control these other things and it's not going to get better than this. It could get better if I went away, you know, taped up all the windows, got rid of the natural light, brought in massive, uh, you know, production light. You know, it could get better, of course, but you have to be comfortable with the fact that you've done everything you can to make it as good as you can. And the only way you get to that point is by being exposed to so many different situations. And that is not to say, by the way, that all of us who are professionals don't still screw shit up. I remember once being in Clarence House on my new A1s, my profile A1s when I first got them, and I didn't realise they were talking to each other. Because, of course, like my Nikon speedlights never did that. So I was basically blinding Prince Charles because I had a <laughs> one camera on me photographing him giving this speech on a set of steps and the other camera on the floor because I was bored of carrying them both. So it was down on the ground, but the flash was pointing right in his face and it was just firing every time I pressed the fire on my one that I was using. And basically I was looking at the camera going, why is this flash so bright? And like turning it down no what are these weird shadows and of course because there was a light coming from below through the staircase it was creating really crazy shadows and it literally took me about 50 shots blinding him to realize that my my light was on on the camera below and I was like oh crap and it was I only stopped trying to get it right because I got tapped on the shoulder by the press secretary he went right stop now because the flash was so bad and I was like what is going on and then I realized and I was like holy shit and I, in my head I was like I am never getting it by back here ever again but I learned a valuable lesson and have I ever left my lights talking to each other since no I haven't yeah. <laughs> so like you know it doesn't matter like how far you get there's always things you can learn but what I'm saying is like you have to expose yourself to so many situations to get better, like sitting behind a computer and editing is one thing. But in my opinion, you should be getting it as right as you humanly can in camera. You know, I always say that something in editing should take something from an amazing picture to an exceptional picture. It shouldn't take something from a good picture to a great picture. You should be getting everything. And of course, there's occasions where you can't and you know what you could do afterwards. And so you think, well, this is as good as it's going to get because I know I can make these changes in post or you shoot knowing you're going to stack or whatever. But um, I think that exposure thing and exposure when you start comes from doing things from fr for free. And even now, like even now, I would say 60% of the work I produce, probably 80% of the work on my website are things that I've got out and funded and produced because I wanted to, to show what I'm capable of doing in the style that I want to do it in. 
and not because it's a commission. It's also, I um, think, you know, equipment doesn't necessarily uh, need to hold you back, especially when you're when you're sort of at the beginning of your career, because you, you might not be able to, you know, to afford, you know, pro photo gear or whatever. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, you you know, don't was, need it. No, you don't. It's, uh, you know, I used, I used to run, I mean, probably for the first four years or something, I used to run my headshot business completely on, on speedlights. And, yeah. uh, you know, and when you get to the point where you can afford, you know, to buy you know, better studio lights, you, what you're actually doing is you don't, I'm not, you know, I don't need to have studio lights. I can get the same quality of headshot with my speed lights. But what it does do is it takes the stress out of the session by me not having to think, oh, I wonder how long the batteries are going to hold out. And it's it's sort of, you know, you're you're essentially buying your way into a more stress-free workflow <laughs> in a way. Yeah, and also I think the thing is that you don't, want to stick all your money to equipment right at the beginning because you mm. don't know who you're going to be as a photographer and what you're going to need so sure. you know i like a lot of the lifestyle stuff i shoot is very evenly balanced and light mm. and so i have b10s and people are like oh why don't you have like pro 10s or you know b1s and i'm like because actually sometimes i need my lights on the lowest setting possible and even then it's too much light Mm. So there's no point having really expensive lights that have massive amounts of power because they don't serve my purpose. You know, I have a, a Nikon D850. That 850 only comes out when I'm shooting like very high-end shots that are potentially going to be posters or mm. um, very static because actually that camera doesn't play well with slow shutter speeds and movement. And so the way that I can use that camera is very different to the way I can use my D810. And so, okay, it's a more expensive camera and technically it's a better camera, mm. but it's not fit for purpose half the time. I cannot use it in an event. I cannot use it in an event. I actually went out and bought a 750 after my 850 just to use when I shoot at Clarence House and places like yeah. Red Carpets and stuff because the 850 is just, it's not the camera for that. And so thinking that you need the, the most expensive things is a false economy. You know, I have a 50 mil camera, a 50 mil camera, a 50 mil lens. Um, I now have a beautiful Sigma one, but when I started out, mm. I didn't think I'd really use it. So I bought a secondhand one for 200 quid from Nikon. And I swear I've used that lens on every job for five years. Mm. And it cost me 250 quid compared to my 85 mil that I bought for 1800 pounds, you know? And yeah. then I was obviously lucky enough to get given one from Sigma. And I've, the, I have to say, actually, if no one's used that Sigma 50 mil, it is incredible. Um, but it's it wasn't necessary to do what I needed to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could totally... Uh, I can see that. I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat. You know, I bought um, I bought a 750, and I've been, because I've been shooting concerts and events um, and stuff like that, especially at the at the beginning. But I realized very quickly that such I, a great camera. That camera is so good in, for so many different um, mm. types of types of photos um, that really there hasn't been there hasn't been a need for me to to really get anything. This thing is a total absolute iron workhorse for me. If it wasn't for image size. Mm -hmm. um, I would use our camera most of the time or my A10. Okay. It is sure. only when I'm, you know, shooting things that I fear will be potentially uh, printed quite big that I yeah. go to the 850 really. Yeah, I mean just, I'm actually I have to say I was I was surprised. Um I had a uh, I had some some images uh for that were used for a billboard campaign that were shot on the 750. I was really surprised how good that looked. Like, ser I mean, I didn't, I, I had exactly the same thought. I kind of thought, oh, yeah, so I have yeah, something yeah. else in for that. But actually, I was, I was, uh, was very surprised. Enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, 24 megapixels. 
only not so many years ago that would have been unthinkable. Yeah. Oh no, of course. Yeah. And I think it's <laughs> like, you know, you just, it's that thing about just, just use what you have and get out yeah. and, and take pictures. And for sure. I found it less stressful when I started doing more things for free because mm. there was zero expectation. Yeah. And as long as it was a benefit to me, then I would do it. And, you know, still now when I get given opportunities and there is that commercial thought in your head with some stuff, you know, doing a project about indigenous people in um, Oaxaca, was there was never really a commercial consideration in that. That was just something that I was passionate about and wanted to do. The ones I've done with charities, it's, you know, they get the images, which is helpful to them. And then test shoots or, um, so probably the, an interesting example was I was going to America a few, uh, last year, no, 2019. And, um, I'd met, so I've met the guys that worked on the Hertz campaigns. Um, and we talked about doing something with Hertz in America because they have this whole campaign about like the all American cars. Mm. And I was like, well, I'm not really, I don't really shoot, shoot cars. Right. But obviously that would be fun and it's different. It's something like, and I'm always up for like trying stuff. And basically they paid me nowhere near what I should have been paid, but they paid me to do it. And part of the benefit to me was I got the car and um, I had a little project while I was out in Miami. So I was like, well, I could shoot this stuff while I'm there already. And we're doing this road trip and we were going down the Florida Keys. And so I did these pictures. And um, and since then, I've been a bit like, I'm not really sure what to do with these because they're, they're great pictures of cars, but they're pictures of cars and like, I don't shoot cars. So mm. where, where on my website do I use a random shot of a Mustang in the middle of Miami, you know? And so I, I, I put them up and obviously they've used them. And then a few months ago, I got contacted by Zipcar um, who were like, we saw what you did for Hertz and basically we want you to shoot a campaign for us, like shoot our cars. And I was thinking, okay, I don't have any other car examples to show you, um, but this Hertz stuff effectively. And so off the back of that, I have, um, in the middle of shooting a, a big commission with Zipcar for it, which is worth a lot of money. Mm. And of course, when I shot Hertz, I wasn't thinking in my head, oh, maybe I'll start shooting cars. But now that's obviously enough for Zipcar to commission me. So from off the back of something that I didn't get paid as much as I should have done for, I've now got a really great commission out of. You never really know how how things are going to be. So I reckon it's always about just putting yourself out there and trying different things. Now, if I'd done that and it had gone completely wrong and the shots looked terrible, of course, I wouldn't have used them anywhere. And that would have been the end of that. And we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Um, but it's, I think it's about creating opportunity for yourself. And then, you know, on that trip as well, randomly, I decided I was like, well, if I'm going away, I should shoot somebody, somebody like a people. Um, so I started researching where I was going. And one of the places we were going to was the Florida Keys and down in Key West, we were staying for a few days to go out to this random island that you could, we call it Death Island. It's not Death Island, but basically there's no facilities and you can camp there for a few days and it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, so we thought that seemed like a fun idea, um, but we had to stop off at Key West to get out there. And so I found out, and I didn't know this, that Key West is big for drag queens. Who knew? I didn't know that. Um, so I then just got on Instagram, found a few bars that were like the biggest bars in Key West that did drag, 
emailed, Instagram messaged the bars, Instagram messaged the people I could find, the, the drag queens that worked at the bars. Mm. Like one person got back to me and said, oh yeah, we, you know, we do, um, we do do let people photograph us, but we charge them for it. And I was thinking, well, that's kind of fair enough. Like they probably get like messages every day from people saying, you know, can we photograph you? And I felt, a bit, I mean, it made me feel a bit of a wanker, but I said, look, before you try and charge me for this, please, could you have a look at my portfolio and consider like, you know, who I work with and what I do, because actually I'm not just going to take some rubbish pictures. Hopefully you're going to get some nice shots out of this. Mm. It won't be a complete waste of your time. Um, so then they came back and said, yeah, absolutely fine. We'll do it for free. Like come down. So I organized it with them and I planned the whole shoot around, um, again, so just something really different for me. I was like, you know what? I'm going to shoot it like a bit Vogue style. I'm going to go like low to high, like lots of blue sky. We're in Miami. It's going to be like high end Vogue, but with like low end drag. So it's kind of like a bit of a juxtaposition of like, you know, these drag queens weren't, um, you know, high end. Well, that's mean, but like they weren't, you know, putting makeup on like professional standard. Like they look amazing in their own right, but almost because it's a little bit trashy, which is what I liked about it. So I thought there's a nice juxtaposition between them being like shot in a high end way, but being slightly less high end in their look. So we did, we, we planned it all. It was sunny for the three weeks I was there until the one day of the shoot. And the heavens opened and it poured down with rain. And I was like, that is the entire, and there was only one day we could do it. So that was everything out the window that we planned. So we just had to, I was like, well, we're just going to have to be inside. And because I'm a professional, I thought to myself before I went, should just take one flash with me, like just in case, you know, as a backup. So I literally had one B10 and a three by one softbox with me and that was it. Mm. And so we went inside and I shot all environmental portraits of them inside in the location where they worked. And if you look at my website and my personal projects, they're all up on there. And I absolutely love those pictures. Now there's no commercial gain out of that at all, except for the fact that I sit there and think, God, I love that picture. And, you know, and that's why I'm a photographer because I love taking pictures. And like, if I didn't do that stuff, all the other things would, you know, you're not going to get those dream commissions mm. every day. Now, one day, maybe someone will pay me loads of money to shoot a load of drag queens in Miami and I'll love life. But realistically, I do a lot of jobs that I don't massively enjoy. So I think one of the things about personal projects and practicing and testing is that it just kind of warms your soul a little bit. You know, that trip was that. And then I did the Hurt stuff. And of course, the Hurt stuff has turned into a commission, which is amazing. Mm. But whether that other one does or it doesn't, I've got a set of pictures that I love and I challenged myself to do something different and it went wrong. And I had to react to that and create images w within the limitations of what I had. And luckily, I wasn't being paid for it. So, you know, it, it all went wrong and I basically still produce something amazing and that's the kind of situation that you can't plan for you have to just put yourself out there all the time hoping that things will go wrong so that you get to practice failure because that's probably like the best way of learning to do anything do you think that maybe five or ten years ago you would have been able to react in the same way to that problem no absolutely not absolutely not i think i would have panicked i mean i still panicked um but 
there was less at stake because I wasn't being paid for it. But I was also very aware that these girls had originally wanted to be paid and were then giving me their time for free. And it had been organized. And basically what happened on the trip was there was uh, that hurricane came in. And so we had to set our trip back by two weeks. The hurricane was due to hit Key West. So they'd all left Key West. So when we got there two weeks later and rearranged the whole thing, they had less cast available because they'd all had to leave because of the hurricane. So it was like very scrambled together and it had been this big thing. And so there was an expectation for me because I don't want to let people down. Like I didn't want to turn around and go, oh, sorry, guys, it's raining. The whole thing's off because that was their day off and they were doing their makeup, like putting themselves together, coming into work effectively when they didn't have to. So, um, but no, I, I, I wouldn't have reacted in the same way. And interesting you should say that because the project that I haven't put out yet that I've been shooting literally over the course of about two years is a big celebrity project and I pitched it into the charity that I'm doing it with about probably about four years ago and they said no we're not doing it sorry I was like this is a really good idea no one's listening to me so for two years I kept having the same conversation and for two years I kept going no and then I'd forget about it for a little bit and then I'd be in the shower and I don't know why in the shower I think of things I'd be like god oh, still a really good idea so I'd pitch it in again and then it just so happened that I was asked to um do a speech um at the Young Entrepreneur Business Awards and I was sat next to the CEO who I basically needed to get into this idea. So I said it to him again. I was like, I really think this is good. I said it two years ago. No one's listening. He was like, no, I think it's great. Email me tomorrow. So after two years of harassing them, they eventually said, okay, right, fine. We'll give you the access. You can do it. So I've done it, but we shoot it behind an event that happens. So basically after we've done the event and all the celebrities come through, we have a setup and they get photographed as a portrait but that's happened for two years in a row. So we're coming up to the third year, which was now cancelled because of COVID. But this has been an ongoing thing for three years. Now, when I started shooting this and I decided how I was going to shoot it, I thought exactly the thing you just said, which is if I'd shot this when I pitched it four years ago, would I shoot it the same way that I'm choosing to shoot it now? And the answer is no, because I didn't have the same experience, same lighting knowledge. Uh, I didn't use color in gels in in lighting, which I do now, even very subtly. Like I didn't do any of those things, and I progressed as a photographer. So the way that this project's been shot, and I still stand by it, and it's been going on for nearly three years now. So I still love the pictures, and I love the way they've been shot. If I'd been given that commission when I'd originally pitched it, I probably wouldn't like the pictures as much anymore. Mm. So I think you, yeah, you always not only you know learn how to deal with failure but your style and your knowledge increases and so hopefully as you move further on there's less kind of looking back and going oh did I really do that than there was like right at the beginning because the obviously the learning curve is a, is much higher mm. I'm quite interested because I, I don't use gels at all really yeah. how, how do you go about using using those just you know a lot of our our viewers and listeners will be you know hobbyists as well and would probably may not even know what gels are or how to go go about using them what um how, how do you use them in your, your typical shoot so i am no jake higgs if you know who jake higgs is and hicks 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 jake hicks let me check this because I should know because I know him and now I can't remember his name. But he is incredible. So if anyone wants to look at somebody who takes the use of gels 
Jake Hicks. I didn't do it right. Uh, to another level, he's on Instagram under Jake Hicks, H-I-C-K-S Photography. He's someone you might want to interview. He's absolutely incredible at using gelled light. Um, now, I am no him. However, I, again, decided a few years ago that for a year, my project to myself would be for an entire year that I would just use gels. So just start using color, color gels in my lighting setups because I've never done it, but I like it. Now, I don't want to be Jake in the way that he uses light. He uses really strong colors in his uh, lighting. I would, I have to find my own way of using them, which is much more subtle. But actually using color in light is pretty simple because all you're doing is changing the color of the light. So if you have any light that's not really, really high wattage, because if it's high wattage, it will burn through the gel. You can buy sheets of colored gels on Amazon for like seven pounds less. And all you need to do is work with the idea that whatever color you put over the light, that's what color you're going to get out the light, right? So if you stick a blue gel over a light and literally tape it on, the light then coming out is going to be blue. So one of the ways to start is think about using color in shadows. So rather than your main light being colored, use a side light being colored. And you'll find that in a lot of my work where, because I, I'm, I'm a massive perfectionist in my photography and I, I've been accused by people who have given me feedback on my work, that my work is too clean and too perfect. So it's because maybe it's not raw enough for some people, which is fine. For me, that is who I am. I do everything to as good a standard as I can. And I like straight lines. I like things to be placed well. That's just me as a person. That's what I am as a photographer. So um, I tend to use light on the face that's quite neutral in colour, which is why, um, like around talking about Kelvins, like maybe like five, seven hundred or something around like natural light sort of colour. Um, and so I like that on a face because I think it portrays someone's face actually as it is. Um, but then using like subtle colors in the shadows can often give really nice hits of color. And the way you do that is if you're using a forward light, so on someone's face, and if you only ever use one light ever, then you know what you do with that. To use a side color, all you do is put a gel on a light that lights the shadows effectively. So that light is never going to be as powerful as the key light. So it's going to be, you know, half a third of the power and then you just play with it. So if you start with your key light, as you would normally set it up, um, and then add the side light with a color on it, you will quite easily see And One of the things I do quite a lot is turn my light to max power and then turn it to a minimum power and look at how different the light is in those two states before I work out how powerful mm. or less powerful I want that light to be. And I don't use TTL. I, I do all my lights manually because I think, you know, you can see what the results in the back of your camera as you take a shot and then alter them to be what you want. Um, but adding a bit of color into the shadows is kind of a nice way of starting rather than trying to flood someone's entire face with color because that is much more difficult. And you've got to think about colors on the color wheel and how they play against each other. Um, but I tend to use, I mean, I, I guess I signature stick to, so this set of images that are coming out with the celebrities are all done on red and blue backgrounds. So for those shots, we used a red and blue gel because it played with the colors of the background. So it makes it more subtle. Um, and we didn't want it to be too in your face with the color. They're lit by a key light. That's just, a, just a normal, um, beauty dish. So 
I think the thing with anything with light, with using gels is just playing around with it and finding mm. the way that it works for you. But in terms of actually starting out, it's so much simpler than it seems. It's literally covering a flash with a colored gel, whatever you want, and then playing around with um, the power of the light and the placement of the light to either, you know, subtly add a bit to the face or maybe just like the background and make all the person's body or a little bit of hair light um, and seeing what your results are. And then, you know, going back and trying again and changing it. I mean, that doesn't sound very technical, but it's because as a photographer, I'm not massively technical. Everything I do is self-taught. So I just play with things and see how they work for me. And with light and with color, I gave, I gave myself that year's challenge and said, okay, for this year, wherever possible, I'm going to start adding color into my lights when I'm doing tests um, to just play with it and see how it works. And of course, sometimes didn't, and I just canned it off. And other times we, we created really lovely um, shots. You know what? why I think I've been so nervous and shied away from gels in, in general is uh, the right way about setting your white balance and then adjusting for skin tones afterwards. It, I think that's what's always thrown me off. Is there a little secret that you can share that yeah, kind of so sets Yeah, so if you're right? using a key light, then your white balance should be for your key light. So if your mm -hmm. key light is just a normal light with no gel, nothing over it, then you're going to set your white balance for that light, right? So um i i manually set my white balance all the time yeah. so i'll set up my key light if i'm using gels i'll set up my key light if that's going to be a light with no color on it and i'll work out what i want my white balance to be based on that light and somebody's skin tone and then when that is correct i'll then add my colored flash now from that point i'm not going to change my white balance because mm -hmm. changing the white balance is only going to change the color of the skin tone, which you already know is correct on a basic light, right? A light with no, absolutely no color or temperature on it. So the colors you add in the background are just going to be whatever the colors are. So if you put a blue gel and you're like, oh, it's too cool, then use a warmer blue or layer a blue with a red. Like then you're messing around with the color. You're not messing around with white balance. I actually wrote an article in a magazine last month, might be out now, uh, for digital photographer all about doing this and doing a very simple um, setup, which I'm going to record a video for. So it will be on my Instagram. But with that, we use two colors, very simply, no key light. So two colored lights, one with a blue, one with a pink, and basically play with the balance. Now for me, blue on skin tone is a bit stronger. Like it can look a bit of a strange color, whereas pink's almost like you're sort of getting towards a skin tone color. So yeah. on that particular um, shot, we used most of her face was covered in the pink gel and almost one side of her face was with the blue. But that was really me standing there taking a shot going, okay, what's right, what's right, what's right. Now for that, I put it on a, a pretty neutral white balance. I think it was on, I can't remember, but it would have been like pretty neutral. So the colors showed as the colors that they were of the gels that I'm putting on the light. However, what I did in post-process, and this is something I talk about, it showed that then if you change the, the white balance in post-process, you're going to change the color of the gels. And you can also do that when you're shooting. So you can put a gel on that's pink, and if you warm the, warm the white balance up enough, that pink gel is going to start to look orange. But what you're talking about is when people, um, uh, for example, set 
a color in the foreground and the background and then by changing the white balance you change the colors of the gels which is again what you're doing if you do on the face but if you basically whichever gel you put on first and whichever gel if you're using two gels just set it how it looks right to you in camera you can always mess about with it afterwards but whatever feels right in camera i say feel right because to me i go by feeling but whatever feels or looks right in camera is what you're going to get out the other side. And if you've got a key light that's got no gel on it whatsoever, set that up first because that's your skin tone colour. And any colours that bleed in are going to be from the gel. And if the if it's too much, then you turn the light down because you, or you want your key light and the one that you set your white balance to to be the strongest light in the image. Um, but it's, it's so much simpler than it seems. It's just you have to do it to yeah. sort of understand that and really it doesn't cost very much money you know you can i have these pro photo gels that sit on in a fancy manner but i kind of half broke the thing that goes on it so i just tape them on and i've got loads of gel sheets that i just cut up and like tape over speed lights sometimes i just use a speed light with it on in the background to add an extra flash if i don't have two um colored lights with me uh, two studio lights with me uh the, the front cover i did for prima magazine with gabby rosin we had two lights on her and that's what I had with me two big studio flashes and they were both uh gelless so just normal light and then in the background was this like white transparent curtain which was hiding the mess of an office that was behind mm. and it just looked a bit flat so my assistant um used a, a pro photo a1 so just speed light we put a pink gel on it and we stuck it behind the curtain firing up so that because the curtain was transparent you could then see this beautiful like pink glow that looked like the curtain or the glow behind was pink but that was literally just a speed light sat there in the background so it doesn't have to be like super complicated um i guess other examples of using colored light that i do in a simple way is sometimes i use them to um make uh ambient light the light that exists in the room so a lamp much stronger than it really is so if i have a lamp in an image often it will get overpowered by natural light or if you take all the light down you put flash on a 40 watt bulb is not going to compete with a flash uh, from a studio light so one of my favorite tricks is i get a, an a1 i put an orange gel on it or a more of a lamp you know like a, a a light that would be in your house colored gel and then i stick that i tape it into the inside of the lamp and then that fires so that when you see the lamp in the picture, it looks like the light's coming from the lamp, but it's actually an A1 taped inside it with a gel on it to make the light warmer than the light that comes from the flash. So you can use color, not just only as a color, like a red or a blue, but also to use like the orange tones to create um, light. Well, they call it motivated light in film. So it appears like the light comes from, the object in the room that's admitting light, but actually it's from a flash. Love that. Pro tip right there. Flash inside of the lamps. Brilliant. Love that. Yeah. Well, when you get time to mess around sometimes when people are late, it's amazing what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's one of my favorite tricks. If it's because I shoot so environmentally, often there is lamps and some of the lamps are like, I really want to use that. It looks great. Mm. But as soon as you introduce flash to even the light out on the face, the lamp goes to nothingness because of course mm. it can't compete. So taping a, a speed light into a lamp is uh, a little sneaky trick to make it look a lot brighter than it really is. I can, I can uh, feel a photo challenge coming on there. 
Nick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And it's like it's so it's so like easy because it's just a cheap speed light. You don't mm. have to have like fancy lights to do that at all. Mm. Mm. So 2020 was a was a really tough year for for most people, but I think especially um in the photography industry or in, in the arts in general, um, I think it was particularly um, tough. How did it affect you? Yeah, 2020, I mean, what can you even say? I, to be honest with you, I'm sort of over worrying about it because it was so shit. <laughs> like, you know when you think things are shit and they can't get any shitter? Mm. That's 2020. Um, so I... I <sighs> And, you know, for me, it completely destroyed my business in the sense that I um, have probably done two jobs all year. Mm. So I've probably lost about 50 odd thousand pounds in income. I don't know. I'm doing my accounts this week. That'll be fun. Um, you know, there's no way of dressing it up. And I don't think anyone should to make it seem better than it is. Like that, I don't ever want to be one of those people. And I've always been very honest about kind of like my earning and my business because, you know, there's nothing worse than people go around going, oh, I'm doing so well, everything's great, you know, because that isn't reality. That isn't how things happen. Um, and being a photographer is tough at the best of times because it's mega competitive. Um, you know, there's more people in the market. So the prices are driven down and actually you're freelance. So you're always competing for work. You, you don't have a stable income. Yeah, don't be a photographer, basically, unless you really, really love taking pictures. Um, and then you do it for the love. And if you happen to make some money along the way, great. And 2020 is obviously a bit of an exception in that. So I think that's how I guess people should be looking at it. And this way that I look at it is it's just an anomaly. And at the end of the day, there are people in paid jobs that are losing their jobs, people who have businesses losing their business all over the place. So for me, as long as I've been able to, which I have, keep myself afloat and cover my kind of monthly costs, it was always a bit of a write-off to me when when the summer came and people were saying, oh, you know, everything's going to start picking up again before Christmas, I'd just written the entire year off. My plan was always, how can I get survive like this entire year without basically bringing any money in? And obviously furlough becomes a part of that because I'm a limited company, so I can pay myself uh, through my business that way. Uh, but also one of the big things that's helped me, and it's always helped me as a photographer, is that I operate with a buffer a financial buffer. So no matter how much I earn, I only pay myself the same every month and I build up in my business account an amount of money. Um, and my buffer is six months. So whenever I, in my account, I always try to have enough to pay myself for six months without doing any work for six months. That's kind of my buffer amount. Anything I have above that, I use to buy new equipment or do personal projects or whatever I want to do, but I try and keep that six months in the account. So for me, when 2020 hit and the last job I did was actually in March, just before the lockdown, I always knew I had a six month safety net. And then of course it went on a lot longer than that. So it's basically ran everything I had in, in my business and in my accounts into nothing. Plus, um, obviously the extra time we had on top of that. So it's been mega tough. And then of course, zero income. Like I said, I've probably lost 50 odd thousand pounds in, in commissions. Um, it's yeah, it's, it, uh, there's nothing I can say about that other than at least in some ways for me, it's given me time to actually almost not do some photography stuff because mm. 
I'm a really, really productive person and I work really hard. I do a lot of test shoots, which of course we've not been able to do. Um, and uh, beside that, I do a lot of work on doing chasing leads and doing various things. And um, I've almost given myself a bit of time off, which is been nice you know we refurbished our entire house um i painted it from top to bottom like i really put some time into doing some stuff like having some time off which i feel is really nice and now going into 2021 i'm kind of more motivated to get back on it because i think that we're going to have probably you know four months of rubbish at the beginning of the year and then it's going to start to come back i mean i could even see at the end of last year starting to get inquiries in because people thought okay well when we get back in january everything will start kicking off again and obviously good old lockdown 3.0 has put an end to that. But um, I think there's a lot of opportunity from, from my perspective. I think that that comes in, you know, people are bringing in much money. Businesses have obviously not bought in much money. They have less money to spend on marketing, less money to spend on advertising. And so I think there's potential to get more jobs direct with brands as opposed to through advertising agencies and um, people that, are basically taking a cut from that because the business is going to be looking to save money. Um, and I think that's where the opportunity will come. So for me, a big concentration for me in this first four months of 2021 is how do I tap into those people that are going to potentially want to work directly with photographers rather than through agencies where they're paying more money. I think I had a, a very similar experience um, in that it seemed like things were picking up and, uh, and inquiries were coming in. Um, so I, I specialize a lot in, uh, or I spend a lot of time shooting corporate kind of gigs. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I could see that very gradually coming back. Um, but of course, that's all possible. A lot yeah, of this, because the problem is that, that those people aren't in, you know, they're not in the office. So they're not there to have headshots taken or whatever. And I think there is definitely like winners and losers of COVID. I would consider myself a loser. Um, you know, my retoucher, great for him has been absolutely manically busy because all these brands are like well we can't take pictures so let's use stock images yet Mm. let's use images we had before change the backgrounds like Mm. you know whatever so he's just been for the whole 2020 run off his feet because people can't take the pictures so they're using retouching and like how amazing for him like he's you know it's kind of just a a coin spin isn't it whether you're kind of product photographers are probably doing better because yeah can still send products to people's houses and to home studios and people can work Mm. on their own but for people like me who are shooting people you know when you're not allowed near them that becomes a problem what i would say you know my my plan for 2020 was originally um to get into shooting more actors um okay you know so uh, because we we built a little extension to the house last year uh, or the, you know, in 2019. And the idea was that be the perfect little home studio type of a thing. And seeing that we're not too far from Pinewood, um, you know, the idea was to actually get a little bit, uh, a little bit more into the, the, uh, you know, the, the actors market, if you want and stuff. And of course, you know, although that started really well at the beginning of, of 2020, you know, come March, that was just, you know, zero. Yeah. And of course now it's, it's a little bit like, okay, well, we're just going to go back to square one you know, in 2021 and just get back into that. Yeah. To an extent. I think it's easy to get like, you know, think like, oh my God, I've lost all this money and I've lost my clients. And like, really all you've actually lost is time. Like, you know, we've lost a year, which is, you know, and I hate being unproductive, but you've got to remember that everyone's in the same boat. You know, if, if I, uh, you know, took nine months off 
to sit on my ass and do nothing, the world would have moved ahead and my competitors would have pushed forward and I would have stood still. But mm. that's not the case. You know, everybody stood still right now. It's just on pause. So yeah. I think I'd take some comfort in that. And I think in business in general, like, you know, being a photographer, really, I think half the success is being the person that holds on the longest because a lot of people just quit, you know, uh, on the way through. And so this is just, a, to me, another one of those tests, like, you know, can you can you stop spending money, you know, reallocate your income, you know, do, cha- and, and, and change things to make it work. And I think that's the constant battle as a photographer anyway. Like I've gone through periods where I've earned loads and loads of money and then, you know, done a job for five years and loads and loads of money from a particular client and then they've fallen off the face of the earth. And for a year after that, I've had to move house because I know I'm not going to bring in as much money to downscale my outgoings. You know, I don't think, I think if you're in a job that's freelance and especially in a job that's very like, you know, contractual and up and down, but you kind of get used to those ebbs and flows. And so you mentally more prepared for it. I think it's much harder on people who have not been in this situation for people who are not used to, um, being motivated, like people who've lost their jobs, who have gone on furlough and they're just sat around going, Oh God, what do I do? Whereas for me, the time that I spend always would work. If I have two weeks of manic shooting and then three weeks of nothing or a week of nothing, Mm. I use that nothingness to catch up on the admin, on contacting people, on emailers, on test shoots, on all the things that I want to do that I don't have time for when I'm actually shooting. So in some ways it's quite nice to have this time. Um, It's too much time. Don't get me wrong. Like it's too much time. Um, But I don't know. I... I sort of just take things as they come at me. And this is just another example of, you know, being, you know, in an industry that's unpredictable, but it's happening to everyone and not just us this time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I'm fairly positive in my outlook. You know, it's, uh, again, I always say this pretty much every episode, I think when we end up talking about, about uh, 2020 is, is that, you know, you get it eventually end up looking at the the positive outcomes out of it because otherwise you'll just get, you know, you just get, end up getting yourself depressed. You know, if you think about all the, all the sort of negative aspects of it. This, there's some, so an example of, a, I guess, a win for me uh, was that I got the front cover of uh, Prima magazine at the beginning of lockdown because I photographed Gabby Roslin a few weeks before we got put into lockdown and they cancelled her shoot for the front cover. And so the magazine were out looking for a shot to purchase for the front cover. And Gabby absolutely loved the pictures we'd taken. So she put them in contact with me and asked... Um, if they could buy them. So I had images purchased, you know, which is something that probably wouldn't have normally happened because they would have done their own shot shoot. It also gave me the front cover of a, you know, a national magazine. And now I'm in touch with the editor and they want me to work for them again. So, you know, that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had this problem. So I think there's always, you can always take some positives out of it. And I think the thing is just to keep just keep on keeping on. Like there's always this big conversation we were talking about the night about luck, you know, how much of what you do is luck and how much, you know, you see other people's pictures and you're like, God damn it. Like I could have photographed that or, you know, oh, why do I not get this job? And someone else has got it. And it's easy to be like bitter or think, Oh, maybe this is just like, it's maybe, and maybe it is lucky. Maybe they happened to be at the party where the commissioning person was at and they had a drink with them at the bar, not knowing, you know, but my opinion on luck, and I've stolen this from somebody, is that luck is effectively like a bus, 
buses sometimes come on time, sometimes they come late, sometimes three come at once and sometimes none come. But the point is, if you're not stood at the bus stop, you're never going to catch the bus. So you have to be out there doing things so that when the look bus comes along, you're in a position to jump on it. If you're not creating and doing and being available, you're not ever going to get on that bus. You have to be sort of the bus stop. And so that's kind of my mentality on it. I just do what I can do. I'm constantly networking, putting work out there, creating, doing as much as I can in the hope that when that bus comes along, I'm the person stood at the bus stop that can, you know, get on it. There's almost no such thing as luck to a certain extent. It depends how you look at it. You create your own luck by being in and around it all the time doing yeah. what you do you know and it's otherwise it's not going to just come to you <laughs> without you doing something to try and encourage that to come towards you if you like and uh, I agree wholeheartedly with what you just yeah. said yeah and it's like the thing when people go oh, I've got no jobs I've got no jobs or I say oh, I've got no jobs and people go oh that's awful like why have you got no jobs and I'm like well I've got no jobs or people think they've got no jobs because what they do is they sit at home and they think someone's going to come and knock on their front door and go, hey, I've got this really good job. Would you like to take it? That is not how it works. If you want a job, you have to be knocking on everyone else's doors. And not only, you can't just walk up to one door and knock on it. You've got to walk up to 70,000 doors and knock on it and hope that one of them comes good at some point. Mm. And so it's sales mentality in the sense that you have to put a lot of work out there and ask a lot of questions and approach a lot of people. And at some point, those things may come back around to you. But you, if you're sat there thinking, I've got no work, the first thing I ask myself is, okay, Holly, you've got no work, but how many doors have you knocked on mm -hmm. this week? Zero. So I'm not creating any opportunity. And so therefore, I don't have any jobs. Now, of course, when you start, you do a lot more knocking on doors. And as you get better and better or more and more experience and more and more clients, a lot of the inquiries I get are incoming to me. They're not just me asking people for work, but I can't stop knocking on doors because if I do, then there's no opportunities in the future. And actually, as your work changes and you get better and you want to do better things, you have to take yourself out of one level of work into the next level you've got to start producing better work but then you've got to start approaching those people which maybe your work wasn't good enough to approach before so it's like a constant um game of i guess getting better and then asking for more but you've got to be out doing that because people are not going to come to you and ask you to do these amazing jobs you know you've got you've got to go out there and ask for them you know and this is this is something that i think creatives in general aren't particularly good at and, mm. you know, because they're so focused on the creation that they forget, actually, most of the work is over here on the business side side of things. And you do need yeah, to go yeah. and create that, that opportunity for yourself. Uh, but if people are, you know, people listening to this right now, if they take anything away from this podcast today, that's it right there. That's crucial. Absolutely crucial. And I think it's, you know, doing what you can do and controlling what you can control. So yeah. I worked out a few years ago that I basically, my my target in life is to be a high-end, if I was to summarize it in a, group, in, a, in a sentence, I'd be a high-end celebrity advertising photographer. So 
if it's Beyonce holding a Dyson hairdryer, I want to be the person photographing her, right? So there's several elements that will get me to that position. One of them is I have to photograph celebrities. This is my little triad. So one of them is I have to photograph celebrities. One of them is I have to photograph brands. And the other is that I probably have to be notable. So I probably have to have shot front covers of magazines. So you can't, for me, that's like my little triad of success. I need those three points in order to create this triangle. Now, any one of those points you could say is impossible for me to do because, for example, if you want to shoot celebrities, which I do do, how do you shoot celebrities if you've never shot a celebrity? Because the problem is that people don't let you do that because they don't trust you to do it because you haven't done it before. And this comes across a lot in photography and it's really annoying. It's like, okay, someone's got a commission to shoot an orange and you're like, hey, hey, excuse me, I've show, shot every type of apple there is out there. I've shot all the apples. Can I shoot your orange? And they go, oh, no, sorry, you haven't sh- shot an orange. So I'm afraid we can't use you on this. And you're like, but I shot an apple. It's basically the same thing. But they don't care. So you have to produce the work in the work that you want to do to get the job. But how do you get the, the job to produce the work that they want in the first place? It's very like chicken and egg. So this is where I do a lot of my kind of, I guess, strategic thinking and idea planning around what I use as test shoots and um, what I do for people. So for example, with the celebrity thing, I was like, well, I have to photograph celebrities. No one's going to commission me to photograph celebrity because I haven't. So where do I have access to celebrities to photograph them where I can offer my service doing it for free because no one's going to pay me to get the celebrity in my portfolio to then prove I've done it to be able to get the jobs that will pay and so it's always like thinking of ways around it now the front cover one's harder because you really do have to be commissioned but you know an example of that for me i guess is now i've shot gabby for prima they probably have me back to shoot something else and then you can put that forward to other magazines um brands are a very difficult one you know you want to shoot high-end brands no high-end brand's going to pay you to shoot for them if you haven't shot other high-end brands so how do you come up with an idea or a concept or a test shoot that shows that you're capable of doing that. And so I think there is some like, you can reach out to people and ask them for work, but you also on the, but behind that have to be producing the work that's going to convince them that, that they should and can hire you. Um, but I think it's a lot about working out whatever your plan is, whatever you want to do, how do you, so if you're wanting to photograph actors from Pinewood Studios, you probably are not going to get the access from Pinewood Studios straight away, but you might get the other actors that don't work in Pinewood Studios or the people that work in the background at Pinewood Studios. Or if it was me, I'd be going to Pinewood Studios and asking them if I could do a project about the people that work behind the scenes at Pinewood Studios. And I'd get in with the directors and the editors and all the people that clean the seats or uh, sweep the sets and I do a whole portrait project about the people that work at Pinewood Studios as a way to get into Pinewood Studios to be able to then pitch other ideas to them so you've kind of always got to be creatively thinking about how what your outcome is going to be and what your final outcome is going to be and how you get there and what you need to do and some of it you can control and some of it you have to wait for the opportunity to come along the look to be in the right place but if you want to shoot access from Pinewood Studios and you happen to be in there shooting something else, there's obviously much more chance that you're going to be lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time than there are is if you're just sat in your house thinking, oh, I'll send them an email. So I think there's like a real mix of like action and call to action, mm. if you like. So Kay, 
when are you going to Pinewood, please? <laughs> as soon as they let people in again. Yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah. see you there. I mean, that, genuinely, if that was me, that's what yeah. I'd do. I'd, yeah. I'd pitch them the idea of doing a portrait shoot of people that work behind the scenes at Pinewood. Yeah. So the people that, like the stories of the people that work at Pinewood, that's what I'd go for. And as part of that project, I'd say, okay, well, if we're doing a full circle of people at Pinewood, I need to include an actor in that because we're doing the people on set, but we're also doing the people behind the set. And then you've at least got one shot of an actor, hopefully a good one, in Pinewood. And then you go from there. This should um, be relatively straightforward because a, a lot of people who go to my gym work at Pinewood. <laughs> so, perfect. So, yeah. Right, we'll start fucking running next to them. Well, I, I would be like hitting them up in the gym. Oh, for sure. 100%. Yeah. In fact, I think uh, I, I before lockdown, I went to a boxing class with uh, with one of the guys who does a carpentry at, at Pinewood. So I've hit him in the face a few times. So that should work. <laughs> so ask him if you, yeah, so he's, yeah, you just need, it's like, it is networking and it's, but it's also using, it's be, and also if you're going to use opportunities, I think you have to be prepared for them. So for example, um, I will be asking the guys at uh, Prima to introduce me to the other magazines in their group at Hearst. But in order for me to do that and then to do it in the most effective way, I need to make sure I've got the shots to back up that I can do that job. So for me, I'm like, right, I'll create a PDF of all the images that I know that work with. So not necessarily just all my images that I like, but the images that work with their brand that speak specifically to what they do. And if I create a PDF of those shots, if I've got things missing, then I'll be like, right, I'll organize a shoot that kind of hits the things that they want. And then I'll put that together so that when I ask this person to introduce me, I've got something specific to send to those people that when they look at my website, they might go, oh, actually, no, she's not the right person because the first few images we've seen on the website aren't actually what we like. So mm. that's the end of it. You know, they'll never look at your stuff ever again. It's putting the right thing in front of the right person and being planned so that you've got that ready to go because you might not have two chances at them actually bothering to read your email. Um, and it becomes stronger because... She, I could say to her, oh, could you give me all the emails of people? I emailed them. I wouldn't do that. I'd say to her, can you email, introduce me to these people? Because coming from her, it's much stronger than me coming as a an unknown person. So it's just, I guess, being strategic in how you approach people and how you plan things. And yeah, that, that's it, isn't it really? Like, I guess it's networking, but it's not just that. It's, you can't ask. I had an art director friend and I didn't ask her for a really long time to introduce me to anyone because I didn't feel like my work was strong enough to get the jobs. And I appreciated that by her introducing me, she was putting her own reputation at risk. So I wanted to be sure that what I had was good enough to compete or to be at the level of the work that those people were producing. And so I waited for a long time before I said to her, oh, can you do this? Because I didn't want to put her in a position. It's like friends with Joey and Chandler. Didn't want to show Joey's tape because it was shit. Like, you know, you can't put people in that position. So, yeah, I think I think it's strategic planning and and like looking for opportunities, but then creating opportunities through, you know, you could go to Pinewood and say, oh, I really want to shoot low your actors. Can you give me your actors to shoot? And they'd be like, well, where's the, what's the benefit for them? So this is what we were talking about before. It's like, what can you do for them? Not what can they do for you? You know what you want them to do for you, but you don't want to go in there and ask for that. You want to go in there and put in a case where you're doing something for them. I'd be like, 
okay, well, this is great marketing. This is great Insta content. This is great for like a story you can tell where, you know, someone's done this because you're basically giving them free work. The marketing department want a story to tell and you're giving it to them for free. So they're winning. And once you've done that, then you've, you know, you've provided them with value. You're more likely to get something back from them. Pure gold dust in terms of advice uh-huh. for anybody, uh, anybody out there, you know, either starting out or, you know, trying to, to kind of, you know, get into photography or building up their own business. Every day is a school day, as I say, you know, so. Well, I was going to say, this is like, uh, and I, the thing, uh, the, the whole concept of like doing something for a benefit that's not necessarily money, right? You're, hmm. you're helping yourself for like your mental health, for having something interesting to do. And you also getting to talk to so many different people and hear different opinions and um, learn different things. Like, yeah, I, you know, that's exactly it. I mean, it's, you know, it, there's definitely a mental health um benefit to it especially in the first lockdown when you know when we got to the point where you would you, you got to the point where you didn't even know what day of the week it was anymore you know um this this really gave us a lot of structure so because we you know typically we record on a monday and then the podcast comes out on a thursday so it just gave structure to the week so we knew what was going yeah, on yeah um and you know it's really and just, also i find it's it's nice to talk to other humans about um work and positive things because i think a lot of the moment the conversation especially you know like in people's households is like okay we've all lost income so how are we surviving on like no income how are we paying our bills um what we do you know it, the news is locked down like i often find that i don't speak to that many of my friends at the moment because i feel like i don't really have anything to say to them because i'm not doing anything so it's like there's no real like you know oh, let's organize this. Let's talk about doing this together because you can't organize anything. You haven't done anything together. Like, yeah. So I find my conversation is pretty limited. I spend a fair amount of time playing Fortnite in the evening nowadays. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. I've, I've, I've reached that point. Um, first lockdown, we played a game called Tank, which was on like a retro games console, right? Yeah. And we were addicted. We were like, as long as we get to level 100, we're never quitting. And at like 98, I ended up blowing us up by accident. And my boyfriend would be like, what the fuck? We like took three hours to get in. There's two levels to go. You blew us up. I'm like, I was just panicking. I just didn't know. I was just panicking. And also by then, I probably sank like two bottles of wine, right? But, but now we're on to Fortnite. And I'm and I'm dry January. So, um, right. so I'm killing Fortnite at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so it's i think I, and i can't phone my friends and tell them about my fortnight ex- escapades because they would think i was a complete loser so instead i thought i'd put it on a podcast where more people can hear about it yeah. um <laughs> but yeah um i i think it's nice to have these conversations with people that are about work and kind of remind you what you do and why you do it and like all those positive uh thoughts as if everything's normal yeah and that's you know there, there really is a benefit in um, in talking to other people and realizing that, you know, you're not the only person feeling in yeah. a certain way or you're not the only person in this particular situation because we're all in the same boat, you know, we're all, we're all in it together. Um, and it, what's what's really been extremely positive, I think, you know, for both Nick Nick and I is, is the fact that there's been uh, such a, like, welcoming attitude in the photo, you know, in the uh, photography community, you know, in general. Um, because, we've you know, we've had so many people on, where, you know, really, never in a million years thought that, you know, people will come on onto our show and, and talk to us. We you know, we started initially. We started by just talking to each other, 
Um, that was our uh, that was right. our format, you know, because we thought we figured like, look, we talk about nothing but photography all day anyway. We might as well just do a podcast, and you know, yeah, yeah, and maybe there might be some other nerds who might be interested in uh, listening to somebody else talk about some whatever camera or whatnot. Um, and then, you know, and then we figured, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have somebody else on the show and and talk to them about their experiences? And so it's just gone from, you know, us. I don't know, you know, uh, interviewing my wedding photographer, <laughs> you know, and then friends to, uh, to, to people who, um, you know, who, well, who, like I said, we never thought, you know, they would come on, you know, I came across your, um, your Instagram profile, you know, by, by obviously following you into your, your profile and just looking at the images, thinking like, wow, that's, that's really freaking cool images. Um, Thanks. you know, and, uh, and so it's it's fantastic to have this format to have a conversation about about photography. You know, I think I think it's difficult because I think a lot of photographers are, can be quite secretive. Because I think one of the things I when I started out, and mm. I think it'll still be the case, is people are like a bit like afraid because they're like, well, if I give away my secrets or I say oh, I did something, then everyone's going to copy me. And I think what people have to remember is that if I went out tomorrow and told a hundred people, a hundred photographers, how I did a shoot exactly how to do it and break it down probably only 20 of them would get off their asses and actually give it a go and about those 20 people they would all do it differently mm. and maybe one of them would nail it and so what are the chances and to quite frank if that person goes away and nails it i'd be very happy for them because by that point i'd already be doing something else anyway yeah. so i think there's like this kind of fear that like oh, I can't get, you know, and I found it often when I started is people wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't give me advice. They wouldn't tell me like how they price things. They wouldn't tell me how they shot things because it was almost like, oh, it's a big secret. And I actually realized there isn't a secret. Like there isn't a secret. Like no. it, it, you just, I, mean, I think the more people that can be honest and like talk about it, I mentor a few people when they come to me and ask for it. And like, it's, they all ask the same questions, you know, they all want to know the same things. And it's, it's kind of lonely when you're a photographer because you're doing it by yourself. So to have, and I have photography friends, most of them are much better and more successful photographers than me, which is good. Um, so I can phone them up and say, Oh my God, I've got to price this job. I've got no idea. Like, what do you think? How would you do it? Like, it's like having colleagues, but that are abstract from you. And I think sharing that information, people phone me up and go, oh, I've got this shot, look at it, what do you think I can do? And I'll be like, oh, actually, you could just do this and this to it, which would make it better. Or I'm doing a shoot next week and I've got to create this light and I've got no idea how to do it. But Holly, I know that you've shot something like that before and then I'll talk them through how to do it. And I just, I don't, I don't have a problem with like paying it forward, you know, and helping people out because I think it's important. Before 2020, in 2019, if you will, before the pandemic, um, I used to hear a lot of people, or I, I, I heard a lot of people say, you know, in order to really um, charge higher prices, you need to really specialize um, and really narrow down your niche, like to like the narrowest of niches. Like if you're a food photographer, you know, specialize, like become the burger photographer rather than specializing, yeah. you know, in food in general, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're a wedding photographer, then really just specialize in weddings, don't do products as well, don't do headshots, don't do corporate and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And then throughout... 2020, I heard a lot of people say like, well, actually now's the time to diversify and to do different things because, you know, any job's better than no job sort of a thing. So how did, what's mm-hmm. your, what's your sort of opinion generally on that kind of, on that hunkering down in a particular niche? 
I think that the reason people are saying, you know, do other stuff. So for example, I'm locked in the house for a year. I can't go out and photograph people. I may as well put a portfolio together of product photography that I can do at home because why not? And say something comes along where um, I have an opportunity to pitch for something like that, then I'd have that. So for me, that advice is like, I'd take it on board as a way of continuing to produce and be effective. But I think it's very easy to be distracted. Mm. So I think that it is best to remain focused on your end goal. So if you can define, and like for a lot of people it changes, but like I said, my ideal jobs is uh, celebrity advertising photography, right? Now, no one's going to necessarily give me that job tomorrow, but I know there's elements of things that I need to achieve in order to reach that goal. So they may not always seem like they work together. So for example, if that's my target and say someone comes along and they want to photograph Beyonce holding a Dyson hairdryer as my rubbish example, I need to be able to photograph a hairdryer as much as I need to be able to photograph Beyonce. So knowing that my goal is advertising photography, there is a chance that within that, it's not just going to be people. It's also going to be them interacting with something or having something. And so it wouldn't do me any harm to spend time focusing more on products. So as an example, that's one of the things I'm doing at the moment. So I do lifestyle photography, which is forms part of how advertising photography would work in some instances. Now, if I'm doing proper advertising product photography, which is where I want to be, then I need to also be able to shoot products in situ. So when I'm doing a lifestyle shoot of somebody, I don't know, uh, let's say the product is um, uh, a lip balm. I'm just making this up, right? It's a lip balm. So the product is lip balm. So they might be like, okay, well, the lifestyle shoot, we don't care about lip balm. We just want to say to people, oh my God, you're going to look so hot and have such a fun time with your friends when you wear this lip balm. So it's a group of girls laughing and like, putting on lip balm or whatever right so that's the the people but within that there is a product so it might be that they want a shot of the product being held by a hand or something like that they're probably not going to ask me to shoot it in a pack shot like a white pack shot because they'll have someone else that they send the product to to do that but there's a high chance that on the set for the advert they will want shots of the product as well so now when i'm doing my lifestyle sh- shoots and i'm practicing test shoots, I always try and involve a product. So at the moment I've got boards going on Pinterest of like how I can include products within like uh, lifestyle shots and um, the list of test shoots I've got to do all involve a particular product. So my focus of the shoot is about a product and how the people interact with or form part of a campaign for that product and not just the people, which traditionally is what I did. So the people laughing but why are the people laughing? Like, of course, they could be advertising lip balm. They could be advertising a holiday. They could be advertising life insurance. But if you have a product, you've got to remember that that's also part of the focus. So in this pandemic, my advice to myself, had I given it at the beginning of the year, would have been, right, okay, well, how can you use your time at home to get better at doing that element of it? Because you can't photograph people, but can you can you start to look at quirks of how you put products in sets or how you put a product on a nightstand or whatever it might be. And I could have created those sets and taken those pictures. So I think you don't want to go around shooting anything and everything because I think it's the wrong message. And every, if it depends what you want to do, right? If you want to work 
high end and get paid lots of money, you're going to have to specialize in something. And I'm, I still find that difficult. And I still find on my website, people like, cull it, cull it, cull it, get rid of this, get rid of that, get rid of a lifestyle picture of a child because you don't do children. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm, you know, I might get commissioned to do that. Who knows? Like if I was going by that advice, Mm. I would have taken the Hertz pictures off, which means I wouldn't have got the zip car job. Right. So there's like, you know, you've got to make your own decision on this, but I spent a lot of time in the last two weeks redoing my entire website Mm. and culling a lot of images. And I have galleries of product shots, food shots, interiors, architecture, uh, events, press and PR. Um, I've shot weddings on the side. Like I've got galleries of that. I've shot lots and lots and lots of different things to make money when I've been offered them, but none of them are on my website. So if you rock up to my website, you won't know that's what I do. Mm. And trust me when I say that I get event people messaging me saying, will you shoot an event for us? And they've never seen an event shot I've done. They've just seen my website. Now, maybe they've been recommended from somebody else or maybe they haven't, but you know, for that level of photography, they don't care because they look at my shoots and think, oh, well, she's capable of doing that. She can shoot an event. Now, of course, they could be totally wrong because we all know shooting an event is very, very different to shooting a portrait. But in a buyer's mind, if you have done better than what they're after, Mm. they assume you can do everything under that. But for a a buyer higher up, if you don't have proof of it, they will not assume that you can do it. Mm. So if I get asked to answer a brief, so for example, Zipcar, I've only got, you know, two or three of the images from Hertz. So when they contacted me, I sent them a PDF of all the car stuff I've done, plus street photography to give them an idea of my sense of how I see streets and, and places, because that's part of what forms that brief. But you wouldn't go on my website and find that stuff. So I never think it's a bad thing to try an experience and photograph lots of different things, but whether you want to put them all out there in the world is another question because you don't want to be seen to be a jack of all trades because I do think that specializing is what will buy you the the bigger jobs for sure. We have come to the end of episode 40 of the Camera Shake podcast with this week's guest, Holly Wren. Um, Holly, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, super awesome uh we will be back next week with episode 41 um but before you go if you live in australia and you're listening to this podcast um please get in touch you can uh, email us on uh, camera podcast at gmail.com or you can uh, get in touch on facebook twitter um instagram all the good platforms uh, but if you are in australia and you're listening to this it'd be super awesome to uh, to hear from you as always we can see uh, in the analytics, we have a little little map where we can see where people are when they're listening to this podcast. And it's always super interesting to talk to people who are somewhere else and um, whilst they're listening to this. So without further ado, that is it. Episode 40. We'll see you next week. Bye.